Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Hello, Regenerates. I am so excited to uh, gift you with this next conversation with uh, Andrew Langford, one of my longtime mentors. Uh, I, I consider him a, a friend and uh, an elder in this movement towards planetary regeneration. He is the co-founder of Gaia University. He was the, the founder of the British Permaculture Association. He has been a pioneer in action learning and really rebooting uh, a pedagogy of uh, unlearning and action learning and uh, holistic engagement, holistic and transformative engagement. And um, yeah, Andrew... Um, for those of you who don't know, I uh, did my master's degree back starting in 2006 with Gaia University. It was a fantastic educational experience. I can't speak highly enough of it. Um, many of the projects that I started back then are really at the roots of everything that I do. My vocation uh, um, in my vocation now and. Um, so I just have a lot of respect, and Andrew's a creative thinker. He has he's got a really big heart, and um, yeah, and sees things very lucidly. I think uh, around the need to sort of relocalize and um, the need and approach for personal transformation as well as community transformation. And I had a great conversation with Andrew. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right. Welcome, Andrew Langford, to the Regenera Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm really excited to, to chat with you. Um, thanks for calling in from Mexico. Ah, pleased to be here. Yeah. So um, just by way of a quick uh, introduction to listeners, um, Andrew is one of the co-founders of Gaia University, and I had the great... Uh, pleasure and honor to study with Andrew as one of my um, advisors and mentors in the Guy University program that I did back in 2006, I guess mm -hmm. it was that I started. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. yeah, and um, just I, I've always felt that Guy University was kind of one of the most um, compelling and um, functional pedagogies, approaches to pedagogy and transformation, sort of uniting action and learning and, um, and unlearning into a single uh, approach. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to invite Andrew here to, you know, have kind of a catch-up conversation because it's 2020 <laughs> and lots of crazy stuff has happened. And, and some of that crazy stuff, I think, involves the world moving a lot closer to the world that Gaia University has been itself sort of cultivating and living in. And so I kind of wanted to just, you know, maybe use that as the entree to the conversation, which is it feels like 
the work that we were all doing when I was more closely involved with Guy University mm -hmm. back in, uh, you know, from 2006, maybe to 2010 or 2012, I was fairly heavily involved. It, it felt like there was just a lot of preparation work taking place for a world that we seem to have just entered. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm curious, does that match your perception that the world just sort of went through a doorway into kind of a, or a phase shift into a, a, a place that feels maybe like old and familiar to, <laughs> in a way, to, to you and uh -huh. the, the way that Guy University has been approaching things strategically? And yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah. Well, it feels it feels as if it's a, another pulse, you know. That we that in the seventies we had one of the or in the late sixties we had one of these big pulses towards the direction that we're heading in, and then you know now we have this other this next one this another big, this big pulse right now in twenty twenty, and it certainly does look as though the, the pandemic has uh, really pushed that along in in, in the in you know the two opposite you know the the, the forked directions, as it were, the one towards um, authoritarian fascism and the other towards uh, uh, ho hopefully us collectively getting our act together to organize and cohere and generate the, the truly humanistic ecological future that we know is entirely possible, really. So... Yeah, we 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 do seem to be. It's just massive amounts of uh, new work appearing all over all over the planet, and a lot of it showing up on the internet and so on. So it's a, it's a time when there's just an abundance of content and directions and initiatives and programs and so on and so forth going on there. I think it must be really difficult. I think to, if I was a newcomer into this field, to uh, meet it. Uh, in the online spaces now, I mean, there's it's just an over overabundance of uh, possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember, and I think you're right in it's sort of like in in recontextualizing the pulses and the waves. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm I'm. It sort of also reminds me that in the permaculture movement, you know, w which wave are we on now in terms of sort of like a new generation <laughs> of. Uh, of yeah. um, people and approaches and I, I don't know what is it like the seventh or eighth wave of mm -hmm. of you know in quotes sort of like permaculture you know this this ebb and flow maybe correlating from the late 60s and um, and probably even before that so yeah it's, that's really helpful yeah. context and just like throwing my mind back I remember when I found Guy University, and I found Guy mm -hmm. University online, it right. was so starkly unique at that moment that I mm -hmm. had, and there was so, there was sort of a desert, and then there was an oasis, and that the contrast was yeah. so high. There was just a, such a high degree of contrast between. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the, you know, all the movements, the, these intersecting movements of permaculture and the eco-village movement and sort of agrarian reform and, um, you know, uh, 
uh, unschooling or, you know, just like this, there's sort of this convergence <laughs> of different approaches that I, I feel like kind of represented the approach of Guy University. Um, as you're saying, now it's as if there's a jungle around that initial oasis. Yes. I, it's, yes. it's um, and which is very exciting, but it's also, yeah. it's very exciting, but it's also kind of confusing. And I, uh, I find myself um, seeing people or, or new organizations or movements pop up sort of at least at the superficial level saying very similar things or inviting mm -hmm. similar mm -hmm. approaches um, who seem to be completely disconnected from the same sort of lineages. And so I'm like, wow, is this just a sort of convergent evolution or are people... Um, you know, copying with what, what works, which is totally fine, not to be sort of pejorative mm -hmm. about copying things and adapting things, but there's no real sort of like lineage connection or, you know, it's just like, I, yeah, I find myself asking what, what, how do we approach that sort of phase change in the world in which we went from a desert with an oasis to a crazy verdant jungle? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to be operating as a sort of change agent and inviting transformation and regeneration when the entire ecosystem has changed <laughs> yeah. Yeah. in a space of 10 years, basically? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I remember Bill Mollison uh, talking to us a lot about diversity and uh, reminding us that it was useful diversity that counted, that diversity in its own right, um, you know, or uh, maximizing diversity without looking for interconnection and so on has much less value than seeking to make the relationships and build the lineages and create the long-term ongoing uh, viability of the uh, various projects. I, I remember Lee Harrison, when she, who, was, who was one of Bill Mollison's uh, primary um, teachers early on in the 1990s, showing up in the UK when I was one of the first permaculture teachers there, uh, say, saying, no new projects. <laughs> we don't need any new projects. What we need to do is we need to make sure that the projects that are already on the go have sufficient resource to blossom into the fully functional projects that they need to be. And I kind of think we're still there. We're still, we're still bifurcating and forking and splitting and differentiating and so on, sometimes with significant meaning and sometimes without. Mm. And meanwhile, finding it very difficult to, to create any... Uh, solidarity and coherence, movement-wide coherence, as it were. I think that's the that's been the, the challenge. I'm I'm a member of the uh, Permaculture Collab, which got going 2013, something like that, which mm -hmm. has been tracking the whole process of how do we build um, uh, increased coherence in our movements. <laughs> we're still we're still scratching our head. <laughs> it's it's still like oh that 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 tendency doesn't really exist in the psyches of our, um, our cultures are still, are still working on uh, um, individualistic 
I like at the conceptual level, I think many of us understand that individualistic has kind of like reached its useful end, gone past its useful end point, and yet actually deconstructing individualism to the point. I, I think the in, indigenous folks have got a lot to teach us on this, you know, the sort of like the uh, um, uh, Don Jacobs Four Arrows, who we've been working with quite recently to think about in. Uh, how how indigenous ways of thinking might influence the ways of thinking that we have in Guy University, and uh, uh, he keeps pointing to pieces of research which show that indigenous indigenous cultures have a, have a really big amount of coherence and community orientation, and yet they have very large amounts of individual autonomy and freedom. Okay, so it's like there's a there's something to be learned about how to do. Uh, but how, how to do autonomy and freedom in the collective space? The commons, right. you, know, you know, we all talk about commons, all right. And 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 I don't see very many people commoning on a resource level. Oh my gosh, definitely. I, I mean, there, wow. So you've that, that my mind. There's sort of a. Uh, I think you've really opened up the door, and there's a branching pattern of different ways that this conversation mm -hmm. can go. And I want to call out a couple of the themes that I'd really love to sort of circle around in our conversation. So one of them, okay. one of them is um, deepening this exploration of the wh what is oftentimes painted as a dichotomy in certain mm -hmm. in sort of like the western political and social tradition around individualism versus collectivism and yeah, yeah. and and just exploring that more deeply maybe through through this lens that you're currently exploring it from um yeah so that would be one another is you know my, my mind sort of wants to and this is maybe the same basic question but a different way of approaching it which is where are we seeing this um how is this conversation showing up in in sort of in sort of like culture wars and the meme the or or how i've been thinking of it because i don't think culture wars really an accurate way to talk about what's happening although it's the mm -hmm. common parlance in media and other things but it's more of like there's a really big there's a lot of evolutionary friction right now <laughs> and there's a bunch of different competing mm -hmm. worldviews you know to use the spiral dynamics language v memes yeah. there's different there's different value memes um yeah. worldviews that are sort of competing with one another and maybe just sort of putting being able to put those that lens on and talk about what we're seeing emerge and how that relates sort of do a little sense making you know so that we could parse together and compare and contrast different approaches to what is currently being called regeneration and you know uh discern you know where is this coming from um are they placing the emphasis on like, like, what does regeneration mean to different people or sustainability or, you know, healthy communities? So that's another sort of maybe way of uh, approaching the same conversation. But um, with that kind of laid out, uh, the last mm -hmm. little, you know, like just 
put it on the in the bike shed uh, or throw the dart up on the wall. Um, yeah. What can we learn from QAnon, and how does that relate to this collective versus individual kind of uh, <laughs> sense making? You know, and like uh, it feels like I've been thinking a lot about this recently. Just you know, <laughs> trying to be sort of anthropological in in uh-huh. in in viewing that. Uh, th- this pheno- this phenomena that's unfolded over the past only like three or four years, th- three years mm-hmm. maybe, um, mm-hmm. and just sort of like, what does that mean for meaning making and culture and cultural regeneration and the approach mm-hmm. of this kind of moment in time? So mm-hmm. uh, with that, maybe I'll, I'll just, now that I've kind of outlined where I'm kind of seeing things going, I'd like to just ask you, uh, to explain a little bit more what you've been learning through your work with the four, Ar- four arrows framework in relationship to how to approach this question of um, that we're broadly kind of calling, you know, the evolution from an individualistic approach to a more sort of uh, commoning mm-hmm. approach, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, four arrows has a uh, a 40 factor checklist in which he makes this it compares and contrasts the current western culture with indigenous cultures you know sort of a general picture of indigenous cultures which he's put together um and i'm pleased to say if we if we if we go down that checklist you know guy university and the, and our practices come Quite a long way down the track towards um, place of more uh, a, a coherent community-based uh, collective um, overview with lots of freedom and autonomy autonomy for the individual. I think we're quite you know we're we're doing quite well at that. But as a but the, but also, wow, there's a, such a long way to go. Mm. <laughs> you know, so as soon as we start looking at the um land back uh, m- movements uh and the um uh, uh, th- uh thinking about people of the global majority getting access to land in the america in north america um uh, as they were promised you know like at the end uh, post slavery and all, all that kind of stuff and doing that in a way which Meets the needs of in, the the indigenous people too, and so on. You can. It's just like there is just such a big amount of uh, uh, private ownership. Uh, um, the private ownership issues come up fast and strong, uh, and that's an area which I think the Western dominated cultures have have. have you know, that's been a primary um, driver of our cultures, uh, and. And it's so deeply embedded uh, that we struggle to 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 um, notice how much work we've got to do in order to deconstruct these notions, these private ownership notions, the rigidity of these private ownership notions. Have you uh, just a quick quick question? Have you come across mm-hmm. the work of uh, Glenn Weil and the um, Glenn Weil? Uh, so. uh, he he wrote a book called uh, co-wrote a book called Radical Markets. Uh-huh. No, I don't know that. No, it, sorry, maybe it's radical liberalism. Okay. And, and he's t- and he has a 
uh, a not-for-profit called Radical, Radical Exchange and, and is talking about radical market ideas. Anyway, he he has a very interesting take on, I think, sort of like, trans. I would phrase it as transcending the the sort of like monopoly issues this is a kind of my tr my uh, attempt to create a synopsis of his okay. his take <laughs> so uh you know transcending the monopoly issues that arise through the current approach of private property uh yeah. with okay. kind of like with more private property and more uh -huh and more market flexibility around private property in uh -huh. which, you know, it's sort of, sort of like Georgian, you know, the, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. he's been heavily kind of like, I think some of those ideas are baked in and generally just like essentially having to auction at every moment. Yes. Your property, your private yes. property sort of in a continuous way or yeah, pay yeah. or sort of pay the commons for the, rights to access it and you get a choice yep, yep, yep. um and anyway the, which doesn't necessarily it's not a radical it's not like we're taking away your private properties so it sort of like fits in with the dominant sort of market yes. individualist narrative and yet the yes. result is really quite different in terms of mm -hmm. how we organize society and access and other things so yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've come across that notion, and it may very well be that it, it was from a source, you know, like Glenn Wilde, as it were. And I think that the Georgist ways of thinking are really worth uh, reviving. And, um, you know, it's, it's uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's a, you know, a, a, an example of a piece of really important thinking, which then got buried in the early 1900s. And more or less disappeared from view, you know, as the neoclassical economist laid layer after layer of obfuscation and uh, com com complication over the top of it. Okay, and you know, dissed it in such a big way, uh, and yet it uh, it survives and it's you know keeps popping up, and uh, people are still thinking using you know people uh, promoting the thinking in different locations and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, that's one of the ones that, that I'm very fond of. And it for me, when I was working, uh, and as I do from time to time, go back to the Cape Valley in Northern California, uh, one of the features of the difficulty, so I took, you know, give a little quick synopsis of that project. That's a, that's a, you know, a hundred square mile, project to it's a valley between two mountain ranges you know so a big watershed which is uh kind of uniquely outside of any of the big dam water catchment areas mm. and so there's a certain amount of freedom uh to think about doing water retention work in the mountains on either side and indeed the local flood control and irrigation people were encouraging us to do that very much. They were saying yes, and you know the, the Cash Creek, which runs down through the valley, they have you know monitoring devices and so on to measure the amount of water that's coming down. They say we, you know, the valley loses something like three quarters to a million acre feet of water every year uh, that just is not captured in any way, which you know drains out of the watershed, to bringing lots of silt with it and filling up the rivers and so on and so forth and if if 
that you could get organized uh, around doing leaky dams up in the hills. Well, you could you could you know you could cool the climate, hold the water back, keep the dust down. Uh, you know, the, the, a, legion, a legion of positive benefits would draw from that. Okay. Yeah. So, so essentially, you, a key, like broadly speaking, a key line, a a, a valley wide key line. Valley wide. Exa exactly. Exactly. You know, with different sort of activities taking place on the three. You know, the steep slopes, the, the, the lesser slopes, and then the irrigable flatland down below. You know. And indeed, up, uh, up until the 1970s, there were some pilot schemes like that taking place, uh, which still function to a certain extent. Anyway, what, what, what you get is you get um, uh, land owners with 9,000 acres on the hills, which they, uh, you know, third generation, so they're not even there anymore. Uh, in the cities doing whatever they're doing in the cities and so on but meanwhile they let the land out to you know grazers and hunters and so on and so forth and it deteriorates and catches fire from time to time and nobody's doing anything to think about the long term because they're on they're just on short-term leases and so on and so forth okay so i look at that and i think oh if we had some sort of kind of like land value taxation system going on we could identify soil carbon as a community resource, mm. okay, and we could be and we could be saying, well, you know, if if your soils show less carbon in them, on you know, in this decade than they did in the decade before, then that means you consume some community resource and you need to pay for that, okay. Yeah. So you could effect you could effectively cause it to be expensive for people not to be increasing the carbon content of the soil or at least keeping it the same as it is now or in the baseline so i think you know we do we need some levers like that we need some levers which mean that people the other the other of course in california the other problem being that the proposition that limited the amount of taxation that people would pay on private property um down to one and a half percent means that you people can hold on to at the time that it was last sold, you know, valued, valued, you know, where the valuation is when it was sold in, you know, 1892 or something like that, right. uh, re remains the base price from which the taxes are calculated. And the result is, of course, that people can afford to sit on land and allow it to accumulate capital value whilst doing nothing practical to increase its ability to hold carbon or hold water or increase its biodiversity or do anything of any ecological value on it at all other than just leave it to catch fire from now and again right so yeah so <laughs> yeah so i would love to see some uh, uh rapid movement towards the place where we have the kind of leverage which means that if we've got um non-functional actors taking not taking care of land, but but owning land, but we could cause it to be increasingly expensive for them to do that until they reach the place where it's appropriate. You know, they need to sell it. How do you um, how do you balance that kind of approach in your mind with sort of the more carrot approach, where there's sort of uh, positive incentives for uh, changes in land use or um, ecological outcomes and 
you know, are, are do you see them as complementary? Um, do they both need each other, or is one more urgent and effective than the other? Sort of the carrot and the stick kind carrot of carrot and the stick. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm English. Okay, so we're really sensitive to the fact that uh, huge tracts of England are now owned by private individuals on, on very large scale, and that any form of subsidy or carrot means that people who've stolen the land one way or another in past history would become the prime beneficiaries of uh, taxpayers' money that would be you or investors' money, whatever it is, wherever it comes from, the from the from the public purse more or less is where it would need to come from so if we do go for carrot then the carrot needs to be needs to have a physical limit in terms of space you know maybe maybe you get a carrot for the first 15 acres and then after that it really drops away you know so uh, it, <laughs> depending on the quality of the land so uh so i would find it difficult to uh, be 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 proposing that people who have nine thousand acres of land should be getting large amounts of public subsidy for improving the quality of the soils. When if we really wanted, if we were really focused on improving the quality of soils, and we wanted to deal with the problems of massive rural depopulation that's taking place, which means there are not enough people, not enough, there's not enough housing. There's not enough housing for, you know, Cape A Valley was a classic. Somewhere like Full Belly Farm that does a great job of providing all year round jobs for 80 people on the mm -hmm. 400 acres of vegetables that they grow there can house maybe 15 of them. And the rest of them have to come cruising in from quite a long way away. The little the cannabis plant, the cannabis plant opened up just above us in Rumsey was bringing in people from two hours away, driving in every day, six o'clock in the morning, they were arriving, doing a four days work and then driving two hours back home to, to some urban area. So there's a, there's a major housing crisis in rural areas because of gentrification. I, I, I mean, I know that gentrification is a big urban problem too, you know, and that's where it's classically seen as being the issue. But in rural areas where all of the, desirable housing is bought up for urban people to have their hobby farms in. And meanwhile, uh, labor force, the Mexican labor force hasn't got anywhere to live and has to drive their way in from miles away. When, you know, nobody, no, nobody's even paying, any, there's hardly any attention going on that at all. Yeah. Well, and it seems like that may shift just by nature of the present moment of um, the exodus. And, and this may not shift in a positive way for workers, uh, but, mm -hmm. but codes, you know, building codes and, and things may shift fairly radically now that there seems to be sort of a COVID inspired flight from urban areas and a, it is now sort of in vogue to for, for from sort of like the tech the tech community to go get their sort of lifeboat in order and move to a rural uh -huh. area uh -huh. and you know uh -huh. use Starlink or whatever to 
you know, do what we're doing right now and be able to, to video conference into work or to whoever they want to and simply do their sort of, um, you know, engineering or product design or business development Mm -hmm. work remotely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe there's a silver lining in that, in the revitalization and sort of more rapidly pushing, sort of have an economic incentive to more rapidly push rural code laws to allow for kind of a repopulation. Yeah, um, yeah, that would be, there that may would be, be some hazards involved with mm-hmm. that just due to the tension between, you know, sort of like farm labor and people who are doing, you know, in quotes, blue collar work um, yeah. on farms yeah. versus the sort of, you know, uh, white collar uh, uh, workforce and there's a yeah. it seems like there maybe has been some historical tensions <laughs> between those two yeah. uh types yeah. of workers in the past but uh nonetheless it might be an interesting um moment in time to kind of push push on that a little bit <clears throat> yeah 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 i think i think you know maybe maybe there might be is that there certainly will be <laughs> yeah but, but in terms of the tension that's 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 the case and interestingly um, some of the work that we're, we've been offered in the Western Asian country that we're about to start doing some rural uh, development work uh, has has that as a part of the focus. So there's a, there is an understanding that the urban areas are currently overdeveloped and unsustainable in 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 in, in those terms uh, in in you know in land use terms and so on. Uh, and so that the and the rural areas have been massively depopulated and uh, 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 struggling to be viable, and so part of the dynamic is to think about how to uh, how to attract the young tech-oriented uh, urbanites into rural areas and do that in a way in which they can integrate well and that their presence is a positive lift to the area, not just because land prices go up and houses house prices go up and all that kind of you know negative stuff yeah but rather that uh, they 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 could receive some kind of some level of training so that they understand what rural small farm activity looks like uh so that they could that themselves and also be part of connecting with people in the community and providing some you know a, ability to build apps which enable the local farmers to direct sell their produce and so on and so forth so i think it's a really interesting opportunity to do something constructive there and interestingly that was the piece of work we were invited to do way back in uh, 2007 2008 in venezuela where they were doing the same thing that they was trying to work out how to move people out of the barrios in the urban areas where it was really really difficult for the government to find ways to provide people with decent housing because of the steepness of the land and the tendency for things to slide down hills and so on and so forth. And at the same time, they were liberating big areas of land further south where they hadn't got enough labour or people who knew how to use the land in a constructive way and therefore they needed training resource to do that. And that never came to anything. But it's interesting to see the pattern re-emerges that there is indeed a rural resettlement dynamic that needs to be well managed so that it benefits 
existing communities at the same time as providing resilience for people who've been in those very fragile urban environments. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like I'm on pretty safe ground stating that I think, you know, and we'll see predictions are always dangerous, but, but I, I, I think we may have hit peak urban um, and maybe maybe the pendulum is yeah. going to swing swing back yes. the other direction. That'd be good. Now, um, mm. Um, mm. at least for a cycle, and maybe it'll swing back and forth a few more times, but the, I think there's going to be a, a pretty big sort of re-inhabitation and revitalization of rural mm -hmm. landscapes. Yeah. The big question is, I, I think, which you're really daylighting, um, pretty elegantly is is how is that done and is that going to be done yeah. in a way that is uh really in keeping with the imperatives for eco-social regeneration um or is it yes or is it not is it sort of like neo-feudal almost in terms of how it ends up looking yeah, yeah. right yeah yeah and and i think yeah. it's probably worth sort of noting that the you know well maybe I'll, I'll back up and just draw another parallel here in um our work in ecuador um mm -hmm. uh, you know which up until now we have not managed to manifest uh the the full expression of the thinking but the idea there was as sort of tech enabled um, outsiders who were sort yes. of the, the first, you know, potential folks showing up in, in what could become a wave of, you know, essentially gentrification. Um, mm -hmm. Part of our sort of ethical responsibility is and was to work with the local community to essentially set aside like a land access bank or <clears throat> yeah. to, 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 to decommodify a, 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 a significant, a large portion of both conservation and, and most importantly, like working lands to maintain kind of a community yeah. access yeah, no, think, yeah. for, for young people, because the, the challenge that, that, you know, and you can see this, I, I mean, if indeed this is what's going to happen, which I think is a safe bet in North America, in the sort of, you know, mm -hmm. Western Europe, North America, uh, you know, in industrialized Asia, if indeed we're, we're seeing something mm -hmm. uh, similar, we can actually look at the, you know, sort of popular tourist destinations of uh, Latin America, for instance. Uh -huh. And you can see what happens when urban elite people move to a beautiful rural landscape and there is no yes. thoughtful design yes. around how the economy is going to adjust to increases in land prices and sort of a reorientation of economics <clears throat> yeah. away from yeah. sort of a, just a simple agrarian baseline. And, and in any way, that's a long way of saying, you know, we always assumed and have worked hard, although I don't think we've been successful to because it requires raising a bunch of money essentially mm. <laughs> and or lobbying politically yeah. or something like you have to do more than just set up your own isolated farm and i think so this is the moment maybe to 
make yes. the, the weave back, <clears throat> the basket weave that we're creating right here in conversation back to the yeah. individual versus commons or collective approach in which, okay, right. you know, decision-making wise, there's a radically different approach if you're a young tech entrepreneur and you're going to go set up your isolated family homestead in a rural uh -huh. yep. place and make sure that you've got your, you know, Tesla power wall and your, you yep. know, and your solar panels uh -huh. yeah. and all of your own little things. And maybe your friends and family have access to that as private property versus the approach of sort of shouldering responsibility for some of the key mm -hmm. elements of a community and a commons and thinking yep. of the landscape. Yeah. And like there's, you know, yep. land access, housing access, and what's the difference so instead of like landing as a colonizer, coming home, as it were, and behaving as a commoner. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so, so uh, you know, maybe framing that out, uh, um, I would love to just hear your thoughts on what are the design principles or the, the, the approaches mm -hmm. from your perspective and all the learning that's taken place in Gaia University to making that shift mm. of worldview and of des design approach to sort of like coming home okay. yeah. versus <laughs> colonizing. Yes. yes. Great question. Uh, and interestingly, just this last week, I, I had an informal consult uh, with a couple of um, people of your generation who are working on a project in uh, a European country uh um where they were first of all thinking about um uh, this is also a, a kind of a connection that we've had before through the dry almond or at least the regenerative almond orchard uh, type of work that i was involved in in the cape Bay valley and so on so yeah, yeah. that's the route through which they got to me was because i have some knowledge about that kind of almond orcharding and of course portugal and other parts of Europe are really good places. You know, Mediterranean areas are really worthwhile. Anyway, so so we got we that's what we got to after we'd spent some time uh, thinking about. It, we started to realise that actually growing almonds generatively requires that you do that on quite a small scale, so that you so that once you get over fifteen acres or so, then you're immediately tempted into the harvesting approaches which are used in California, which require the joke being that if you if if Californian almond growers could actually physically tile the floor of their orchards so that they could get absolutely clean almonds off when they harvest using their but they do it. That's what they do. And you know, like that's the terrible thing in February when you're wandering around in in, in California and looking at these big commercial almond orchards, that's what they're out there. They're out, they're out there with the planers and the rollers doing their best to remove all forms of vegetation off the orchard floor, get it as flat as possible and then rolling it so that it glistens, you know? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Polishing it up, polishing up the clay, you know? So, so these things need to be small. So as soon as you start looking at, uh, and then, and then there's like the, uh, you, uh, you know the, the the film Demain that the um, transition uh, people are highlighted in, uh, which highlights uh, Ferme du Bec, the farm in northern 
uh, in Normandy in France. Um, they just published a book, The Miracle of Abundance, uh, in which they show this really interesting uh, combination between um, John Jeevens and Elliot Coleman-inspired market gardening, you know, with, with deep soil preparation and double digging and composting and so on and so forth, and all based around this idea that if you do it according to uh, careful calculation of calories and uh, mostly a plant-based diet, you maybe you can grow enough for a single person on 5,000 square feet. And okay, really interesting stuff. And then they combine that with the permaculture uh, forest gardening and landscape, you know, water retention landscapes and so on. So that I think the technical and physical scale side of things is becoming much more apparent that, you know, like seven, 10, acres is kind of like the size that you need to be thinking about which is if you're on reasonable land um which is quite contrary to the way uh um either in england or in the us or places like that people would think you know people would think of a small farm as being 160 acres as a minimum and anyway so does that side okay so so there's a whole piece around reorienting people's um technical uh, gardening, landscaping, use of land type of approach, okay? Quick question there, if I might yeah. interject with your stream mm. of thought. I'm, I'm always curious about the different approaches of, you know, I'm sort of hearing you talk about the, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a small group of people mm. managing a landscape, I think what you're saying is the, you know, managing a, com a more complex, holistic, mm -hmm. smaller landscape is proving to, to, to offer certain advantages in terms of um, uh, the challenges of, of yeah, of, of just com managing a complex agroecosystem mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm curious how well, that- and, and also, but without- without having to have massive fossil fuel inputs all the yeah. time because you're driving bloody great tractors around. And, well, yeah, exactly. So having yeah. a low input, high yeah. complexity, where, where most of the effort in a way is mental because you're yes. managing a complex yes. system um, and you're Very trying so. to do yes. so with a low number mm -hmm. of inputs and have real high productivity, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. I'm sort of curious how, in your mind, that balances with the need for sort of like bioregional uh, watershed, food shed, scale, mm -hmm. planning approaches, wildlife corridors, mm -hmm. sort of like, and more of a cooperative regional planning approach, because it seems mm -hmm. to me that if it, if, you know, the, the, the downside of sort of like the hyper self-sufficient, complex, agroecological, sort of permacultural, sort of home garden approach um, mm. is, is that it still sort of like focalizes on in, 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 on an individual unit of land instead of sort of on the larger landscape. And I'm just curious, I know that's probably not, uh, I know there's a way that probably this, this vision is sort of connecting back up to scale and moving between yeah. patterns and details, but I just wanted to <clears throat> it's like daylight that and maybe make that movement back up to scale and then back down to the smaller sort of land unit that you're right. suggesting. Uh, right. Well, 
uh, the, the this uh, up the scale, you know, bigger scale uh, ecosystem regeneration uh, scale of um, activity is indeed part of the same vision. Okay, so it's the mosaic of small farms provides you with the opportunity for creating what in England we call Hamlet, Hamlet scale um, uh, dwelling development, which means that you can do compounds, multi-generational um, uh, homesteads and so on and so forth, which are connected in little clusters of 15 or 20 holes or something like that to provide the, you know, the social and the car sharing and the whatever else you need to do to make all of that work. So you not, not, we're not looking at the isolated uh, individual homestead um, of, of, from, you know, previous visions as it were. And that uh, provide, that also provides the awareness that you need to be looking at the bigger landscape too, and dealing with the watershed work and, getting up in the hills and getting those little leaky dams up there and so on and so forth so that you do have a watershed scale level attention. And I, what we, the, the, the piece of work that we get to do in Western Asia is about training agricultural extension agents who I think are a, a critical lever in all of this kind of stuff um, so that they cease to become agricultural extension agents in the conventional way where they might be, you know, like a crop specialist or a, a chicken specialist. We, are, we, are, you know, we, we have this entertaining current situation in which the people who are the specialists in livestock don't work with the people who are the specialists in crop growing. Right. So, you know, like there's a whole integration thing that you, you have needs to be done there as it were. Okay. So, so, uh, and, and that those folks not only need to be uh, capable of advising people around what they do with their, these are all, all of, this is specifically around small farms, 2.5 hectares, that kind of size uh, mm -hmm. as being very typical. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they need, so they need to be doing these really intensive um, uh, systems, which provide for their, for all of the, um, plant nutrient needs from the same piece of landscape from which they're providing their food needs and so on and so forth and their and their cash income needs too all right so that's okay so so mean but meanwhile also having the surplus attention to be able to pay attention to the bigger landscape and and making sure that the aquifers are filling up because somebody's bothered to hold the water back up in the slopes and so on and so forth so yeah I think we, we do have, the whole the thing does have that full range, but it is startlingly difficult to have people who've been trained to be looking at just the small unit to start thinking also about the bigger landscapes, or yeah. and to indeed see that that's relevant. Well, and it seems like it, you know, one. Anyway, I want to make sure not to totally de derail where your train of thought was going, but just to riff on that a little bit, it seems like there's two, there's a, you know, at the landscape scale, we, we by necessity have to engage in politics and, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, although mm -hmm. sort of, sort of like semi communal or 
fan, you know, sort of like some form of cooperative Hamlet approach to reinhabitation is in a way a political act. It's not yep. inherently politics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that you know, um, so so we have to be able to engage in the landscape scale. We have to be thinking about policy. We have to be thinking yes. about you know how we're taxing. It's sort of like the 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 preamble of this. Yeah conversation about you know are we are we taxing land degradation in some meaningful way or mm -hmm. um how are we thinking about harbinger taxes or harbinger taxes or or whatever mm -hmm. the the mechanism may be that's political to, yeah. to to drive things but then we're sort of zooming down and we're sort of just noting look we have 50 years or so of well-documented evidence leading us to understand that the optimal uh, diverse sort of um, pro regenerative production system for mm -hmm. uh, uh, in a, in a relocalized way is of a certain scale and has yeah. a certain set of practices mm -hmm. and approaches that you know, we're that are emerging out of a lot of trial and error, and that we can yes. sort of identify those and and people could go out and, you know, kind of nail that and make a viable, um, viable go of it vocationally, if if how you're yeah. measuring that is the ability to, you know, feed people. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you, you, you're unlikely to get rich, uh, feeding people in today's day and age. That's true. <laughs> but that may change you know, uh, yes. uh, so. Yes, as it did in Cuba, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So. And I, I, you know, I'm, of the, I'm of the view that, you know, that, that, that it's almost impossible to not be political. I mean, you know, I mean, I like sometimes you see in people's signatures <laughs> little statements which really ring true. And I read one the other day, which was, you know, the, uh, in in a current culture wh where we're taught to um, uh, diminish ourselves, uh, the, the act of loving yourself is an act of revolution. Mm. You know, so it's like you know these things are all political acts. Really, it is it is intensely political to imagine that what we might be doing is finding a way of uh, integrating re-inhabitation of rural areas by people who've previously been born, brought up, and raised in urban areas and for whom rural areas are completely alien you know that's a big that's a big piece of work yeah yeah and 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 you know in in a way the question isn't whether or not that's going to happen or at least again this is the this is the prediction the question isn't whether or not that's going to happen it's how it will happen because there are sort of socioeconomic climactic mm -hmm. forces that are they're mm -hmm. just forcing functions for that mm -hmm. to take place basically yes. Um, which, which I think is kind of like the, I think that may be the qualitative difference between this present moment and perhaps sort of the back to the land movement, um, of an earlier era and generation Aha, of the sixties. Yes. Right. Yeah. In which there was sort of an ethical and philosophical reason for for young urban people to be considering mm -hmm. you know moving back to the land and starting intentional communities but now the reasons are 
sort of systemic and imperative. So that, that yeah. it forces people who may not desire out of some romantic uh, reasoning to be moving back to the land, to move back to the land, be, <laughs> because that's just what has to happen. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So, so moving back to, you know, sort of like seeing if we can reconnect with your thought train, I, I had asked a question earlier about sort of design principles and you were, mm -hmm. and you were talking about sort of this emergent, um, you know, uh, learning about what a um, appropriate scale to approach regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. is looking like. Um, and I'm curious to sort of continue down that thread. What are principles that you're seeing um, or, or maybe even just storytelling or, or a vision of what you've seen working around how people are approaching this initial design challenge that I sort of uh, laid out around um, sorry for my discursive question here but um, so it's hard enough to have a successful you know regenerative enterprise or vocation yes. as <clears throat> as a individual nuclear family as you scale the number of people who are involved mm -hmm. it becomes infinitely more complex the social arrangements the sort of like inner politics um there's a reason why hyper individualism and rational materialism has emerged i think over generations as one approach um where are you seeing success in terms of social technologies and design principles that allow us to re-inhabit the cooperative sort of communal commons space mm. and manage that increase in social complexity successfully? Mm. Well, I wish, I wish I could point to some really, well, I, I of course, you know, Mondragon in Spain would be one of the places where things are happening on a pretty large scale, uh, which demonstrate people's capacity for functioning in, broadly cooperative ways and um, in ways which got, I mean, I think we're actually much more capable of working the complexity that's required than uh, we might first think. In fact, I think, I think uh, complex cultures are what we most like to be in and that the hyper-individualism type of approach isn't one that we've arrived at because we've chosen to go that way. I mean, not you and me, we haven't chosen to go that way. We've been obliged to go that way because of the guard, the guardrails which have been put into place by neoliberal capitalism. And before that, you know, from in 500 years ago, when, when the accumulation of capital first started to become a primary goal for merchants and bankers and so on and so forth. So I don't, I don't think we have the culture that we have currently because we've all been engaged in a collective positive design. Hey, let's go more individual. Okay, I think we've been obliged to, you know, Margaret Thatcher's famous quotation, there is no such thing as society. Yeah. You know, 
kind of thing, really. I mean, that's that's been a deliberate policy by the owning classes for a very, very long time to break us all up into a smaller fragmented units as possible so that we're deeply vulnerable to being manipulated to do whatever they think it's appropriate for us to be doing, which is mostly fighting, fighting amongst ourselves. Really. Enter the QAnon conversation. <laughs> yes. I mean, you could, you could see the current political situation in the US as a perfect example of divide and rule at some peak level where, you know, 72 million people and 74 million people are sitting on opposite sides of the fence, as it were. And as you might imagine, you know, civil war, has, is more possible now than it ever has kind of thing in the US anyway. So At least since so the last time it was possible. Except, except during the last time when, when it seemed, yeah. So here we are, we're, we're actively engaged in serving the interests of the um, senior capitalists, as it were, by f fighting each other half to death. Um, by imagining that by imagining that we have much less in common than in fact we really do yeah yeah perfect strategy i mean you know when you yeah stoke the flames jack up the conflict have more fighting away merrily whilst we do the dirty deeds behind closed doors yeah, which there is certainly some historical precedent to assume that that is indeed <laughs> uh, part of what's happening, at least. I'm always, I mean, yeah. just to be honest, I'm always on the fence around whether there's a they there or whether it's uh -huh. sort of like a, whether the, whether the syndrome, the, the disease, Mm -hmm. the um whether it is more of a syndrome or a disease or sort of like the emergent property of some specific uh, you know and and inspired by some of your thinking around the patrix and other things where you know mm -hmm. in, um we can kind of see that in in particular circumstances it, it's sort of like the intersection of sort of social determinism <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, mm -hmm. just like, yeah, I can totally understand how it makes complete logical sense for a, sort of like an, uh, someone who has accumulated or inherited lots of accumulated capital mm -hmm. is going to behave in certain ways. And mm -hmm. in fact, that almost like they're blind to the, um, in my moments of interacting with mm -hmm. Uh, it, it, which which are not insignificant, right? Because I've been raising money for a startup and sort of been participating yeah. in sort of the, the the capitalist endeavor for the past, you know, uh, maybe five years at least, sort of in a in a focused way. Mm -hmm. um, my experience has been, by and large, people are sweet and good-hearted you know there's the occasional mm -hmm. asshole <laughs> but yeah. you know by and large people are sweet and good-hearted and yet seem to sometimes behave or, or hold completely pathological beliefs <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. And which sort of leads me to wonder, you know, like how often is there sort of a conscious they who are, or, and how often is it sort of the emergent <laughs> property of some weird out of control social dynamic? And uh, it, currently I think it's kind of a mix of the two, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's a, confu- yeah. but, but I'm kind of like, I don't really know, <laughs> who, Yeah, you know, so anyway. I don't know how that lands for you in terms of just um, kind of like the the under like because underlying how you're explaining this, which I think is super lucid, there is sort of a way of inviting us to notice the sort of like inherent uh, incentives of different you know classes essentially, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and sort of like be clear about calling those out, and um, so I, I kind of wanted to invite you to speak a little bit more on how you perceive the, the those in class in interactions and mm-hmm. how sort of like conscious versus unconscious these sort of dynamics are that are mm. are pathological like that are leading us towards pathological interactions between each other and between you know humans as a species and the planet mm. yeah well, I just recently I've been noticing that there's been a little bit more attention showing up around class uh, as a dynamic which shapes our cultures. I mean, it's like a hilarious at one level that we, uh, or well, it's both hilarious but also a, I think a, sim- a symptom of how powerful um, the hidden forces which hold the class system in place are that we don't talk about class a lot more okay so uh, and that we somehow imagine i mean i like that was always one of the jokes for me was as a english person where we you know we we're specialist observers of the class system because we we (laughs) right it's it's very you know there's, there's a queen and there's a and there's aristocracy and there's you know landed estates and no right. access and trespassers keep out and you know whereas the in the states we can pretend yeah. there's no class here it's just that's uh, that indeed australia that's the same yeah right. uh, you know that there's this sort of myth that the class system doesn't exist really and it's only those old colonial folk from and we beat them in the civil war in the uh revolutionary war anyway you know so there's like a whole you know like as if as if the class system disappeared uh in the new the new world um as it were so so i'm very grateful that it's now emerging and you know it's and and we are able to talk about it a little bit more and so on and see just uh, you know like like the Koch brothers you know i read reading the report that came out in 2018 which uh showed how there had been the systematic use of the fortune that these guys had been gathering to shape the Republican Party so that no person who had climate change on their agenda could ever get nominated for a for any political post anywhere in the Republican Party at any level, you know, kind of mm. thing. You know, so, you know, so, so the Republican Party we got right now is a direct result of or in part is a result of the manipulation through having large sums of money, which the Koch brothers were able to do um, and so on. So, 
so yeah, I, and, and, and of course the whole land ownership, the way land distribution is set up is entirely class-based. There's a lovely report uh, out just recently that shows that you know something like 92% of the wealth of um, the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and so on, uh, is um, uh, in land value. Okay, so like if you take into account all of the money that's flying around in stock exchanges and so on, it's a piffling quantity compared to the value of the real estate and so on. And this is owned very by a very small number of people and so on. And this has been a wealth accumulation project which has been going on for hundreds, maybe even thousand, you know, thousand years or so. Uh, so we need to, that's that's we have an urgent need to deconstruct the effects of that and whether that means so we're back now to the Georgist yeah. ways of thinking about how to um, deal with uh, making arrangements around land which make which make it expensive for people to hold large amounts of land if they're gonna if they're not gonna give access to the um, if it's not going to be accessible for people to use on a usually front basis of some sort then. It needs to be expensive. So yeah, the uh, class system is critical. And then, uh, and then from the other direction, you know, like I'm, I'm reading, and I'm a member of a little organisation in the UK, which is um, uh, a working class and raised poor community of, of 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 people who are seeking to support each other through this COVID thing. And of course, they're they're the people who, for whom something like this pandemic is the most uh, damaging because they don't, you know, they, these are people who don't have the necessary funds to be able to survive their way through nine months of zero income and still having to pay the rent. And, yeah, and they don't have a little allocation of Amazon stock or whatever that just no. appreciated, you know, yes. whatever, 50% yes. overnight. Or <laughs> and, and, no, and no access to the... 10,000 square feet of land that they might need in order to feed themselves. Yeah. Which would, which that was one of my early experiences when I was a shoemaker was, you know, I had, I did have three quarters of an acre of land with decent soil and reasonable irrigation. And by being able to uh, hold that uh, provided an immense amount of freedom to be experimental in the way we were seeking to make a living. So, it's very clear that if you've got the opportunity to um, work on a, a relatively small scale on a piece of land and you can provide a whole bunch of basic resources for your household, then that gives you a level, a level of liberation from having to be involved in the mainstream economic system. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the project. The project is to access land again for people for as many people who could handle it and would want it with the appropriate training and financial support and so on so that they've got so that their universal basic income is something that they're generating out of a decent piece of land somewhere yeah Small. yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, well good so another another topic i'd love for you to share both to refresh my memory and mm. to to invite you know, our, our listeners to consider is just a little bit about what mutualism, uh, mutual aid, mutualism, um, 
uh, sort of solidarity um, looks like in the 21st century. You know, I think uh, my read on mm. it is that in similar economic scenarios in the past, there was a, a, a great deal more sort of, you know, I, I, I suppose we could say, you know, precariat, proletariat, working class solidarity uh -huh. in terms of mutual <clears throat> aid societies, you know, people pooled yeah. resources and there were, you know, there was no such thing as insurance back then, but people would pool money and take care of each other's family if they were hurt or, yeah. you know, th so th there was a, yeah. there was a whole movement, right. And we still have the remnants <clears throat> of those odd <clears throat> fellows and, you know, whatever, all of the mm -hmm, different mm -hmm. sort of like groups of, you know, elks and moose and, yes. uh, you know, rotary clubs and all of these things right. on some level were different groups of people saying, hey, let's get together. Let's take care of each other and our families because no one else is going to do it. Mm. Um, you know, like, A, why aren't more people doing that? Yeah. <laughs> B, could mm. you tell a little bit about what you've done in that space? Because I think it's inspiring and could be sort of informative to to think a little bit about, you know, sort of like income sharing schemes and mm -hmm. sort of other mutual aid approaches for people to be, uh, you know, addressing some of this. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I'm, I, I am part of two uh, systems myself, one of which is an income solidarity um, system and the other is a capital sharing system. Okay. Both of which, uh, function as little collective support mechanisms. Um, I get, I get actually the, on the income solidarity front. I guess we, one of the problems is that we're all aging out. That's so. So uh, it's it's very difficult to attract young people. It seems into such yeah systems. Um, and we I, in Guy University, you know, one of the one of the. Uh, courses that we run on a regular basis twice a year includes a whole description of the income solidarity system that I'm part of, plus a whole range of other income solidarity systems, which a lot of immigrant people um, have operated and are still operating. Um, you know, so when um, uh, uh, Korean people arrive in the United States, uh, in some urban areas, there's a very good network of people who already have established small enterprises uh, run by the Korean community. And what they do is uh, organize themselves to uh, provide the working capital to get somebody set up and started and get going so that they become financially autonomous over time and in turn can also support new people arriving and so on and so forth. So there's, a, when, there's actually more of it going on than meets the eye, okay? Um, and yet, it's the struggle to bring new people into these systems. Yeah. But from my point of view, the, the, um, both the in income solidarity system has been very functional and, and useful, and we've managed to use it a couple of times to pull some of our um, members out of credit card debt uh, uh, or, you know, bank rate debt, which is very difficult for them to meet their in, uh, you know, interest repayments and that kind of thing, really. Okay, so yeah. it's been very on that respect. 
The most difficult part about all of, all of those has been administering them. So they often involve um, uh, quite sort of like lots of little minute transactions. So they are ideally suited to the new um, computing uh, type systems that are uh, popping up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, because, you know, it becomes possible to do very small scale transactions in large numbers uh, without a great deal of cost. Um, yep. But so far, we've not been able to attract the necessary coders to create the apps and such like to do that. Uh, and the capital sharing, the capital solidarity scheme has been super helpful. There have been a number of times when Guy University might have failed because of cash flow issues. The two thousand. The post two thousand eight crash, two thousand nine, ten, eleven, um, drying up of people who wanted to, um, you know, risk what small financial resources they had by by taking college courses, um, help uh, gave us a few cash flow issues right then, and having the ability to you know pick up the phone and talk to your capital sharing colleagues and borrow thirty thousand dollars overnight. You know, I can make the arrangement overnight, more or less, and be able to borrow it on, on uh, at interest-free rates and so on has has made a big difference to us because we're you know we're still small and so on. So yeah, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, uh, what I see is uh, it's a question that we ask in the in the course material. We say, okay, so now you've seen that these possibilities exist. What resistances pop up, or for you around, you know, what 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 would stop you being involved? Okay, and mostly people feel unworthy. There's a, there's a sense in in which they feel as though well, two things. Two things. One is that they're really scared that somebody's going to cheat. Right. Okay. So our income solidarity system has a little, you know, you 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 can choose the percentage. You, so there's a little calculation that's made which determines how much more or how much less than the baseline you have access to, okay? And then you can choose what percentage of that you expect to be either made up or drawn from you to go into the system. So you can be it on 1%, you know, you could, which, which means that you might have a liability for $6 a month or something. You know, right. so it's not hardly, you know, all right. So it's like, so that, so you can do things like that to make things very easy to be part of. And yet it's a barrier that is really difficult to jump over. Yeah. So I don't know what, I'm not entirely sure what that's about. I think it's some kind of level of distress. So, you know, one of them, one part of which is, oh, I'm supposed to be able to do this all on my own. Right. What, you know. But it's contrary to the. I, I think you're talking about communism. So is it, I think this is communism. It would might be the fear, you know, for people from, um, you know, something socialist. Well, you know, I, have you heard the the term uh, the the communist of the the communism of the rich? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, if you, once you accumulate enough capital, you, you do uh -huh. go through a threshold in which you're able to do things like call up your friends and get low interest loans and, yes, yes. you know, have access to liquidity in certain moments, which is yep. not yep. the experience of the average person who's yep. 
shouldering. <clears throat> like I have had the experience of having paralyzing interest rates yes. associated with the the working capital that I accessed to start yeah. businesses and and different things. And yeah. you know, I yeah. I do think the invitation for a, the I, I think there's a huge alignment between what you've uh, what you're talking about, what's possible in terms of what's possible and what's needed and what is now possible through sort of a more programmatic uh, mm -hmm. software driven decentralized approach mm -hmm. to finance. I, I actually think yeah. that, you know, right now DeFi in quotes is quite sort of, it's kind of like wildcat banking at the moment. And so it's, you know, it's very, uh -huh. um, uh -huh. okay. Okay. It's very, uh, trending it's very trending it's very speculative yeah. it's very yeah. driven by profit by and large yeah. and yeah. at the same time there's huge amounts of work going into base building sort of like the basic open source building blocks for uh -huh. a wide uh -huh. variety of different financial instruments that you can sort of like assemble and you can create the governance um and liquidity and um, management parameters that that you'd like, and so I think mm -hmm. you know as you're talking about that, okay. my mind okay. is sort of churning around. And this isn't the first time, but you know, sort of revisiting some of the people in that space who I think you know could potentially be allies, because I, I actually think there's a there's a demand here. There's a demand amongst, it's something that we have to solve if we're going to bring mm -hmm. kind of access to financial capital and, and liquidity to the places on the edge that it's needed to drive healthy innovation. Yeah. You know, that it's just, just a demand that we have yeah. right now. So, yeah. Yeah. I've also been seeing it in, you know, like the Classworks project, which is um, the project I was describing, the, the working class raised poor. Mm. project in the, in the uk um you know they they've uh in the covid crisis they sought donations and um gifted financial support around about around about 350 380 pounds worth of support in the six month period um just from, just from their relatively small uh network as it were of, of mutual aid so these these things have a lot of promising um capacity and it, and again i guess that it would probably be the case that people who most need the support to run these types of systems are the people who have least amount of access to the kind of surplus time and intelligence and strength and stamina that you need to get these things up and running. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a lot to get these things up and running, but I, I, I think it's maybe within reach. I, you know, I've been having some really interesting conversations with friends and colleagues mm -hmm. down in Ecuador, which obviously, okay. yeah. you know, in, in, in juxtaposition mm -hmm. between Ecuador and the United States in terms of the, the rea economic reality associated with yeah. COVID is, you know, in the United States, brrr, there was just a printing and an inflation of the monetary yes. supply. And mostly, of course, that got distributed to banks and yes. corporations 
So it may not actually have that much of an impact on the day-to-day reality. But yeah. anyway, the, the, there, w- there was a giant injection of liquidity into the economy as there was yeah, a down yeah. cycle. In, <clears throat> in, you know, that was not the case in Ecuador, which uses the dollar yes. still. Uh, right. Not, they don't have financial sovereignty, so they can't go out there and print it, print the money. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah. um, and if they did go out and print the money, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and everybody would be defaulting on loans and whatever. But anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. So um, yes. Yes. the U.S. taking advantage of its, uh, you know, of the position of the dollar as <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. the petroleum reserve currency. Um, so Anyway, I've had some really interesting conversations with with my friends down there. Actually, I'm hoping to have Javier Carrera on the on the podcast here soon. So, folks, stay tuned for that. It should be really interesting. And he wants to have a conversation about how they used the eight forms of capital framework and the uh-huh. indigenous principle of Aini, which is sort of uh, mm-hmm. loosely correlated to reciprocity, but I think goes much deeper than that, than, than okay. the term reciprocity sort of really anchors in our sort of Western understanding of that. Um, and mutual uh, uh, credit and, mm. and sort of like uh, mm-hmm. mutual mm-hmm. credit systems. And um, okay. they've been, we've been having some dialogue and they've been doing work, right? To create sort of um, yep. a little bit of liquidity and spaciousness for people within the seed saving network and sort of the agroecology and permaculture community to help each other oh, okay. taking yep. care of all of this in, in that, you know, and, and they have a much easier time with the sort of mutual aid solidarity economy conversation in, in that particular culture than I think, you know, in the United States, yep. for instance, uh, it's, it's more yeah. of a natural, yeah. um, outgrowth of their existing relationships i think right not they're not so far removed from yeah as 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 we we have been so i'm hopeful <laughs> to learn a little bit there and you know and maybe maybe between your experience and their experience we could start drawing up some specifications that could kind of get passed down mm-hmm. to prog- potential programmers in sort of an open source way that sort of mm-hmm. say here mm-hmm. are the parameters needed to sort of create these uh financial instruments and I, and I do know there are there are several attempts going on yeah. in in sort of the larger sort of uh crypto and blockchain space for mm-hmm. sort of uh some things that approach this I don't think any of them are as grounded and practical I think a lot of them are still very abstract and they're not coming out yeah. of um the the need so much they're coming out of the direct ideal. need yeah 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 yes so. yes yes so if well, any so listeners are out so. there and you're in the crypto space and you want to do some uh, hacking <laughs> hacking on some you know i think what would be pretty simple applications around you know managing um collective funds one group andrew that i would encourage you to look at and and listeners as well mm-hmm. is uh the commons stack Okay. Um, and shout out, I know there's several listeners of the podcast in the common stack community, but they're doing really awesome work around, um, a- around pooling common resources and governing those resources. Okay. Um, in sort of a programmatic way and some really exciting and they're modeling They're they're they've created, um, 
sort of modeling software. So you can mm -hmm. model the effect of different parameters on a group of people, which I think is really mm -hmm. important because one of the, the biggest challenges I think that we face that could overcome some of the distress resistance that you're talking about, uh -huh. people not yeah. wanting to be fleeced or not really understanding because it's complex. Finance is complex. It's an abstraction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from our day-to-day -day reality by mm -hmm. nature. Mm -hmm. And by having a modeling environment, I mean, I mean, I think the ideal situation is that you have a, um, like almost a game in which a group uh -huh. of people can get together and they can play a game and adjust the parameters of how they would like to be interacting with managing a common pool resource. Oh, that would be interesting. Right. Yes. So that, yes. So that the consequences of different <clears throat> design choices are apparent to everyone who's participating before yeah. you opt in, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And that, to me, feels like a prerequisite for adoption at scale, because otherwise people right. can't um, opt in because, you know, you, everybody's busy, everybody's fragmented. How do you take the mm -hmm. time to understand the ins and outs? <clears throat> You're giving your you you may be being asked to put very scarce money into a pot that you hardly yeah. even feel like you have, and yes. so therefore yeah. it's really important that people can really see the consequences of that as an investment, essentially. Uh -huh. uh, so uh -huh. anyway, that's a that's maybe a way to reconcile some of the challenges mm. that we face. Yeah. Sounds in, interesting. Yeah, in creating these new kinds kinds yeah. of instruments. Yeah. Uh, I want to be cognizant of your time, Andrew. Yeah. I'm happy to keep going a little bit longer, but we've sort of moved a little past our scheduled time. So just to do a time check with you, how are you doing on your end? Okay. I, I've got about another 10 minutes before okay. I need to hop off. Yeah. Great. Well, let's start kind of a conclusion okay. cycle then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, so you've alluded to programming at Gaia University um, mm -hmm. and it's been sort of woven, the, the Gaia University approach to all of this, I think has been woven into the sort of uh, subtext of the conversation, mm -hmm. but, but I'd love it if you'd make it a little bit more explicit what Gaia University is up to these days and how people like, you know, what are the mm -hmm. program offerings, how what are the ways that people could could engage with Gaia University as a resource for learning and unlearning and community? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we, uh, I mean, you know that we've been doing reevaluation counseling uh, as part of the Gaia University offering for quite some time now. And then recently in the, because of the COVID um, crisis, uh, 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 there's been a lot more attention to un to online um, work in the in the broad revaluation counselling community as well as with Guy University. So we're putting a lot more emphasis on that now because we're we're we're, we're seeing that the the effects of the Patrix, you know, the class system, racism, sexism, uh, and all of these things uh, are. Um, so intensely interfering with our capacity to move forward with uh, you know the the firm Dubec small scale agriculture distributed land resource commonsing so on and so forth you know that's also uh, um, the, you know distress patterns do 
major parts of, uh, major parts of the interference with our ability to get to those things. So we we have that approach. So that's now on offer from Guy University as a as a program. And in fact, we split it up into three little bits. So we do a piece which is about using some very simple techniques which can be used for um, uh, facilitation of meetings. So you can add, you know, uh, components of think and listens that you can add into almost any other kind of group facilitation process and make it go better, that kind of thing. Hmm. And then you just, and then we do a big piece about looking at the patterns of um, the oppressive society, uh, which is getting more and more historical. You know, so like, um, have you read the end of the Mega Machine? Um, no. Yeah, uh, a good a good read, uh, which does this sort of like big historical arc of the way our um, patriots-ridden culture has progressed or or regressed from very early in you know the beginning of the Holocene, more or less in the beginning of agriculture, right the way through. So we do so that that's part that's an increasing part of our effort to make the um, possibility of the visions that we hold actually uh, come true and, and, and get enacted okay mm -hmm. uh, we still we still work with the idea that um, most of us um, have more espoused theory about being independent self-directed autonomous learners than we have theory and action you know our capacity to imagining ourselves as these energetic buoyant lively uh, open-minded learner thinkers doers kind of thing uh goes beyond our our actual practice is, is what i mean you know yeah. so when it actually comes when it comes to being able to do it uh it turns out that our capacity to practice it is less than our capacity to think that we can do it yeah. If you follow me. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. So yeah. So we. I so that, that. So that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's what that's a big piece of our um, early uh, uh, our certificate in eco-social design, followed by the certificate in auto ethnography and learning design. Those are all about giving people the opportunity to make the transition from an other directed learner, self directed and transformative action unlearner, as it were. So that's a big part. Um, that takes people maybe eight months to a year to complete that that piece. I, I, I mean, you're, you, you know, when you were in Guy University, we did that piece face to face, right? And and it was much less much less developed than it is now. Now we now we expect it to run over, you know, getting on for a year for 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 folks because they make this journey and and most of that is based on your book right eco-social design yes. um that's right so, so yes. if people wanted to they could pick up the book which i think is a great overview of sort of the theory and praxis yeah. behind mm. the that program yeah. and and have a read yeah yeah that's on that's on that's available on lean pub um eco-social design book esd lean pub stroke esd i think is is how it's um the URL for that, uh, and it's available. Pay what you can afford, free awesome. of charge, right the way up to as much as you like. <laughs>
Okay. So, <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> As, yeah, we, uh, I'm very pleased that it's been interesting to skin up and because it's because it's self-published. We get we get most of it. We do get most of the cash, which you know means you get a nice check every now and again. So uh, so yes, and then and then once people have gone through that preparation phase, uh, they're off on their uh, self-directed, self-generated projects, which they may already have uh, been engaged in before anyway. Um, and they do that with uh, ongoing mentoring from our alumni and uh, who also have a training and how to be um, mentors and support people for people doing their self-directed action learning based projects. Um, and then that's how that's how people earn credits for their degrees. They produce output packets, and we uh, self-review, uh, peer review, professionally review, and ultimately externally review um, those collections. Uh, and that's how people qualify for their degrees with us. Yeah, awesome. Well, I really love that um, process. I mean, uh, there's just such. Uh, it, it's so inspiring to me to see some of the design building blocks around knowledge generation that mm. Guy University has been um, assembling, you know, and pioneering, I think, as a as a unified form, you know, where yeah. they're sort of uh, taking inspiration from where it works to, to have self-reflection and yeah, peer reflection and, mm. and, and external yeah. reflection. And it seems to me that that yeah, it's just such a fundamental element of knowledge generation and maybe beyond knowledge, mm. even understanding generation. So, yeah, um, I mean, and we think of wisdom, you know, like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's the route to wisdom, as it were, to, to both have the theory and the action and the reflection and the commentary from other people and so on. So, it's, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's still a, a, a pregnant and potent sort of undercurrent here, which, uh, you know, next time we chat, maybe we can mm -hmm. dig into more deeply around this paradox of what it takes to unlock the self-directed agency and potential mm -hmm. of an individual human and yeah. harmonize that agency with a group and yes. how our sort of standard polarizing perspective would say, yeah. you know, you're either submitting to some totalitarian regime or you're a rugged individualist, which somehow does not seem to stack up to reality. And there's something maybe much deeper that needs to be explored there. So I'm excited maybe to have that conversation with you next time. Okay, I look forward to that. Yeah, well, it's been yeah. fantastic to have you on, Andrew. Um, thank you so much for all the work that you do in the world mm -hmm. and uh, you and Leora's leadership mm -hmm. in Guy University and more broadly. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, thanks for coming to the podcast. Oh, I appreciate it, it's lovely to be here and it's lovely to be back in contact with you at this level. Yeah. Appreciate your thinking. Yeah. Likewise.